6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Lamentations, chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 4 laments the ruin and destruction that he's confronted with. But again, it traces it back to their sins. And then the final chapter is really, in effect, a prayer. It's the one chapter that's not acrostic. And be taken away, the, the, the reproach will be taken away, and the people will ultimately recover. The first four poems out of the, out of the five are acrostic. Each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Just like, like many of the Psalms. Psalm 24, 34, 37, 111, 112, 145, 1, especially 119 are the same kind of a structure. It's presumed by many scholars that that was organized to help make it easier to memorize. But that's a conjecture. The first, second, and fourth have 22 verses, same number of Hebrew letters. Third has 66. In other words, three verses that begin with each the successive letters. The fifth one is not an acrostic. It's really a prayer, a little different... There's also something else I picked up. There's a thing called the kinometer. It's a frequent use of in the, in the chapters 1 to 4. And it's a rhythmic pattern in which the second half of a line of verse has one less beat than the first half of a line. It's very analogous in the music to a minor chord, if it will. It, it, it creates a dirge. It creates a very funeral feeling to the passage, even just as a piece of... Uh, of course, that's in the Hebrew, not the English. And this forms a three to plus two, what some people call a limping meter, which conveys a hollow, incomplete feeling to the reader. There's also a chiasmic structure of the whole thing, because Lamentations chapter 1 is Jerusalem's desolation. From there we go to the emphasis that it's God's judgment. Not the Babylonians, it's God's judgment that's really operative here. And that leads to the peak of the whole thing, Jeremiah's response to all this, to recognize what is what it is, but also as a, a reminder of God's love. The fourth chapter is on God's anger. And finally, the, the response of the remnant that survives, what it should be. And there's a chiasmic structure here that implies organization that may not be obvious as you just go through Jeremiah's throbbing concerns. So jump right in. Chapter 1, Jerusalem sits as a solitary widow weeping solely. The first dirge has, first is from being the outside looking in, and then he's going to shift from the inside looking out. He personifies Jerusalem as it calls to those that are bystanders. Let's just jump in. How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How is she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces, how has she become a tributary? So, you see, the whole concept of widowhood in the Old Testament is, depicts a position of helpless despair is the idea. It's often linked to uh, orphans or strangers that are, couldn't protect themselves and so forth. That's an idiom in the Hebrew. Verse 2, she weepeth sore in the night. 
and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. You notice the whole idiom here isn't that of a critic. It's one of a compassionate concern. He's involved. And it's interesting that Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. There was another one that wept over Jerusalem some 600 years later because of what was going to happen to her. To Jeremiah, the destruction of Jerusalem was history. To Jesus, when he wept over Jerusalem, it was a matter of prophecy, yet future. And so we might remind ourselves in Matthew's Matthew's primary theme was the, the purpose, the tragedy, and the triumph of all history. The purpose of all history, the tragedy of all history, and the triumph of all history. And the last few verses of chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus, having ridden that donkey into Jerusalem, says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered chickens under her wings. That's the purpose of all history. But you would not. That's the tragedy. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And when Jesus is weeping over that, 38 years later, again, the Romans, again on the ninth of Av, on the Jewish calendar, destroyed the place. You would not. Here's the triumph, though. doesn't leave without hope. But I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, until ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. There is a bright day coming. Till ye shall say. Those milestones are important. Let's get back to Jeremiah and Lamentations, because he will do that. by He'll pick up on that in chapter 3. But we're still in chapter 1. Judah has gone into captivity because of affliction, because of great servitude. She dwelt among the heathen. She findeth no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. The ways of Zion do mourn, because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. Her adversaries are the chief, her enemies prosper, for the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Let's not lose sight of the purpose here. This is God doing this to them, in effect. Babylon's just the instrument. For the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. And from the daughter of Zion all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like hearts that find no pasture. Hearts being a deer, an antelope kind of thing. And they are gone without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the enemy and none did help her, the adversaries saw her and did mock at her Sabbaths. Jerusalem has grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. All that honored her despise her. Because they have seen her nakedness, yea, she sigheth and turneth backward. All the way through here, well, echoes of the real cause is Jerusalem's behavior. The fact that Babylon conquered her is just simply God's instrument. Her filthiness is in her skirts. She remembered not her last end. Therefore, she came down wonderfully, and she had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy hath magnified himself. The adversary hath spread out his hand upon her pleasant things, for she hath seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary, whom thou didst command that they should not enter into the congregation. The Gentiles were in the temple. To them that was an anathema. They were not, the heathen were not to be 
allowed there? Well, they're run over running the place. They're tearing it apart, stealing the valuables, burning it down. See, they, this building was what they had relied on for their security. should be relying on God, not the building. But that was a symbol of their, uh, like a fetish in a sense. This very thing that they had relied on is now defiled before their eyes. Gentiles who were not supposed to enter it were in it. The thought that's being advanced here is they're looking at this sort of like a good luck charm. And they felt that Jerusalem was safe because God's house was there. He might let other people be destroyed, but not his own house. That was the mentality. Well, surprise, surprise. People learned too late that God does not hold stones in higher regard than obedience. Disobedience brings destruction. And I painfully fear that that's the lesson that we're about to learn as we outlaw the Bible in our schools, as we ignore the Bible in our laws and our courts. Continuing verse 11, all her people sigh, they seek bread. They have given their pleasant things for meat to relieve the soul. Oh, O Lord, consider, for I am become vile. It is nothing to you, all ye that pass by. He's sort of speaking here, idiomatically, he's changing uh, point of view. He's now speaking as if he's Jerusalem, talking to the people going by. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold, and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Whose fierce anger? Not Nebuchadnezzar's. God's fierce anger. There is a poem that might be worth taking a look at. It's That's Jeremiah's term for God our righteousness. I oft read with pleasure to soothe and engage Isaiah's wild measure or John's simple page. But even when they pictured the blood sprinkled tree, Zovitzitkanu was nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul. Yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. Zovitzitkanu was nothing to me. When free grace awoke me by light from on high. Then legal fears shook me. I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in itself could I see. Jehovah Zitkanu, my Savior must be. My terrors all vanished before that sweet name. My guilty fears banished when with boldness I came to drink at the fountain life-giving and free. Jehovah Zitkanu is all things to me. Famous poem by McShane. How often, even in our churches, do we fail to really appropriate the reality of our need for a Savior? How often we go to church to feel good, to improve whatever, rather than to simply acknowledge the debt that's been paid? The greatest sin. What's the greatest sin? God has a remedy for the thief. The thief on the cross was saved. Paul was guilty of murder. He was responsible for the death of Stephen, but he got saved. Moses was also a murderer. God has a remedy for the murderer, for the thief, and the liar. There's one thing he doesn't have a remedy for. He does not have a remedy for the man who rejects Jesus Christ. That is the greatest sin you can possibly commit. Well, the second half of this lament... Chapter 1 has now shifted its focus.
Instead of standing on the outside looking in, Jeremiah has now moved to the inside and looked out. Jerusalem herself is calling to those around to take note of her condition. From verses 12 to 19, Jerusalem's call to those who had observed her desolation. And the last couple, it's, it's finally her call to the Lord Himself. From above hath he sent fire into my bones, and hath prevailed against them. He hath spread a net for my feet. He hath turned me back. He hath made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. They are wreathed. They come up from my neck. He hath made my strength to fall. The Lord hath delivered me into their hands, from whom I am not able to rise up. The Lord hath trodden underfoot all my mighty men in the midst of of me. He hath called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord hath trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, as in a winepress. The word winepress is often used throughout the Bible as an idiom of judgment. Isaiah 63 pictures the Lord coming in the second coming, covered with blood, treading the winepress of His judgment. Revelation 14 uses the same idioms. Revelation 19, he's riding a white horse with his vesture dipped in blood. Not his blood, the blood of his enemies. The winepress all the way through. For these things I weep, mine eye, mine eye runneth down with water. That's why we call him the weeping prophet. Because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. This is where Jesus, 600 years later, also weeps over the city of what's going to happen to her. Here he's speaking of a fait accompli, it's done. Jesus is describing it before it happens, some 30 years, 38 years in advance. To Jeremiah it was a matter of history, to Jesus it was a matter of prophecy. Zion spread forth her hands, and there is none to comfort her. The Lord hath commanded concerning Jacob that his adversary should be round about him. Jerusalem is a, as a menstruous woman among them. The Lord is righteous. For I have rebelled against his commandment. Here I pray you, all people, and behold, my sorrow, my virgins, and my young men are gone into captivity. Why? The Lord is righteous. See, God is not wrong here. God is righteous. For I, Jerusalem speaking idiomatically here, I have rebelled against his commandment. That's the real reason that Jerusalem now lays in smoldering ruin. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and mine elders gave up the ghost in the city while they sought their meat to relieve their souls. Wow. What weight lies around the necks of the false spiritual leaders? It's their burden. Behold, O Lord, for I am in distress. My bowels are troubled. My heart is turned within me, for I have grievously rebelled Abroad the sword bereaveth, at home there is as death. They have heard that I sigh. There is none to comfort me. All mine enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that thou hast done it. Thou wilt bring the day that thou hast called, and they shall be like unto me. Let all their wickedness come before thee, and do unto them as thou hast done unto me. For all my transgressions, for my sighs are many, and my heart is faint." called the Wailing Wall of the Bible. It's like a peon of pain, a poem of pity, a proverb of pathos, a hymn of heartbreak, a psalm of sadness, a symphony of sorrow. These are echoes of J. Vernon McGee's presentation on this. It's interesting how 
seminary trained pastors always have alliteration, right? That's how. But here it sort of works, doesn't it? A piano playing, a poem of pity, a proverb of pathos, a hymn of heartbreak, a psalm of sadness, a sympathy of sorrow, and a story of sifting. Let's go to chapter 2. The national sins are the cause of the misery. This is the second dirge. It's the punishment of Jerusalem's sin. We're going to find about God's anger, Jeremiah's grief, and Jeremiah's plea. And that's the way it sort of organizes. How hath the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger, and has cast down from heaven unto the earth the beauty of Israel, and remembered not his footstool in the day of his anger? The Lord hath swallowed up all the inhabitants of Jacob, and hath not pitied. He hath thrown down his wrath, the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He hath brought them to the ground. He hath polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. He hath cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel, the authority, the power of Israel. He hath drawn back his right hand from before the enemy, and he had burned against Jacob like a flaming fire, which devoureth round about. He hath bent his bow like an enemy. He stood with his right hand as an adversary. And slew all that were pleasant to the eye in the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion. He poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was as an enemy. He hath swallowed up Israel. He hath swallowed up all her palaces. He hath destroyed his strongholds. Hath increased in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. God took full responsibility for all this. God took responsibility for what Nebuchadnezzar had done. God allowed him to destroy. Nebuchadnezzar destroy the city of Jerusalem. God used him as a rod. Just as he had used the Assyrians against the northern kingdom. What's the lesson here? We need to recognize the hand of God in our own lives. God's in control. He really is. And he hath violently taken away his tabernacle as if it were a garden. He hath destroyed his palaces of the assembly. The Lord hath caused the solemn feasts and the Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion, and hath despised the indignation of his anger, the king and the priest. The Lord hath cast off his altar. He hath abhorred his sanctuary. He hath given up into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of a solemn feast. The very temple that God had blessed He'd given instructions for its building. His very presence had been there at one time. And now he can say, the day came that I abhorred that temple. Makes you wonder, is your church something that God delights in still? Or is it something that actually interferes with his cause or purposes? We must be careful we're not guilty of the sin of presumption. Boy, they sure were. The Lord hath purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He hath stretched out the line. He hath not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore he made the rampart and the wall to lament. They languished together. The very thing that protected them came down. Her gates were sunk into the ground. He hath destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the Gentiles. The law is no more. The prophets also find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit upon the ground and keep silence. They have cast up dust upon their heads. They have girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem hang down their heads to the ground. Mine eyes do fail with tears. You know, it's interesting. As you read this, you realize Jeremiah isn't an objective, distant critic. He's involved. He's committed. He's, he's a participant. 
He's in the middle of all this. Mine eyes do not fail with tears. My bowels are troubled. My liver is poured out upon the earth for the destruction of the daughter of my people because the children of the sucklings swoon in the streets of the city. He lost his health. He gave up everything, including his health, for his commitment to the truth. They say unto the mothers, Where is corn and wine? When they swooned as wounded in the streets of the city, when their soul was poured out into their mother's bosom. Boy, is there anything more painful than the cry of your children when you can't provide their basics for them? What thing shall I take to witness for thee? What thing shall I liken to thee, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I equal to thee that I may comfort thee, O virgin daughter of Zion? For thy breach is great like the sea. Who can heal thee? Thy prophets have seen vain and foolish things for thee. They have not discovered thine iniquity to turn away thy captivity, but have seen for thee false burdens and causes of banishment. Boy, what a burden on the spiritual leadership. It's the prophets and the leadership that are at fault, that have not called these things properly. Jeremiah's focus was a false prophet's hastening rather than hindering Jerusalem's downfall. God had threatened to destroy Jerusalem because of her sin, and the prophets were supposed to announce this impending disaster and exhort the people to repent, and they didn't. They didn't. Unfortunately, though Jeremiah and Ezekiel were faithful to the prophets of God, others were tickling the people's ears with rosy predictions of peace and prosperity. They were peering on their television channels with Rolex watches and so on. All that pass by clap their hands at thee. They hiss, wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All thine enemies have opened their mouth against thee. They hiss and gnash the teeth. They say, We have swallowed her up. Certainly this is the day we looked for. We have found. We have seen it. You know, the enemy outside is elated. Who is the enemy outside of Jerusalem at this time? The Edomites. The Edomites. And you have this strange verse that concludes Psalm 137, an imprecatory psalm where the psalmist is hoping for the opportunity to dash the heads of the children against the rocks. When you read Psalm 137, you come to that last verse, it baffles you. What's that doing there? And what he's really talking about is aspiring to do to the Edomites what the Edomites were aspiring to do to Jerusalem. It's an echo of this whole thing, by the way. You can check out our Psalm 137 commentary if you want to get into that. The Lord hath done that which he hath devised. He hath fulfilled his word that he had commanded in the days of old. He hath thrown down. He hath not pitied. He hath caused thine enemy to rejoice over thee. He hath set up the horn of thine adversaries. Horn being authority. We're going to discover the parallelism between these passages and Deuteronomy 28, where in the Torah Moses lays down the, the curses if they don't obey. And this is structured right against that. We'll see that in, uh, shortly. Because the Lord hath done that which he hath devised. He hath fulfilled his word is what he's saying. God is assuming responsibility here. In fact, Jeremiah is lamenting the fact that he's just simply doing what he promised he would do. He hath thrown down, hath not pitied. He hath caused thine enemy to rejoice over thee. He hath set up the horn, the authority, if you will, of thine adversaries. Their heart cried unto the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give thyself no rest. Let not the apple of thine eye cease. 
Arise, cry out in the night, in the beginning of the watches. Pour out in thine heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift up thy hands toward him for the life of thy young children that faint for hunger in the top of every street. This was all predicted graphically by Moses in Leviticus 26. Graphic detail. When Moses warned them of the consequences of disobedience to God's law. Behold, O Lord, and consider to whom thou hast done this. Shall the women eat their fruit, the children of a span long? Shall the priest, the prophet, be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? Whew. The young and the old lie on the ground in the streets. The virgins and my young men are fallen by the sword. Thou hast slain them in the day of thine anger. Thou hast killed, and I'm not pitied. Thou hast called as in a solemn day my terrors round about, so that in the day of the Lord's anger none escaped nor remained. Those that I have swaddled and brought up hath mine enemy consumed. When Babylon finally broke through Jerusalem's defenses, the soldiers were angry because it took them 30 months. They were held at bay. Pretty effective against that kind of an army. They made no distinction between age and sex. The bloodthirsty Babylonians butchered uncounted thousands. There are no records. Okay, next session. For your next session, read through chapters 3 through 5, and we'll review those in the next session. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for this word, heavy though it is. We pray, Father, that we may listen to the spiritual leaders that will call us back to you and not trust in secular alliances or other resources, but to look to you as our God, our refuge, our very present help in trouble. Oh, Father, we pray through your Holy Spirit that you would help us appropriate to ourselves the lessons that Jeremiah has here for us as we commit ourselves without any reservation into your hands, looking only to you, Father, as we commit ourselves in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Lamentations. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.